how it lights my path, how it guides my way. We're continuing in our journey through Exodus. And we are now in Exodus chapter 12. And I'm going to read to us verses 1 to 13. Exodus chapter 12 and verses 1 to 13. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood... And put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire. And they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water. But rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until the morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Let's pray for Steve. Lord Jesus, thank you for Steve, for the words that you've given him. Just pray now that they will live for us, feed us, strengthen us, illuminate us, and bless him, we pray. Amen. Morning, everyone. Sounds a bit like fast food to me, eating this food with your staff ready and your shoes on your feet. So that made me think a little bit about fast food. I was in McDonald's the other day, and I had a kid's meal really tasty, but his mum was absolutely furious. <laughs> I went up to the, to the counter and I asked for two large fries. I was very disappointed. They gave me lots of little ones and that wasn't what I was hoping for. How does the hamburger introduce his wife? 
Meet Patty. I'm quite ambivalent about pizza. Only on the upside, lots of toppings, but on the underside, there aren't any. A burger walks into a bar, and the barman says, sorry, we don't serve food here. And what type of computer does Ronald McDonald use? A Big Mac. Well, that's enough of that. <laughs> yes, there's an enthusiastic yes here. <laughs> there were more, but they were worse. Why did the hipster burn his mouth on his pizza? Because he ate it way before it was cool for anybody else. I told you they were worse. We don't want to go any further down But it feels a little bit like eating fast food in this, this bit here. It's, it's a feast that's been prepared, but it's got to be eaten quickly. It's a significant meal. It's a very significant meal for the people of Israel. It's the Passover. It's the Passover that they celebrate every year. It's the Passover that Jesus was celebrating with his disciples as he broke the bread and shared the cup of wine with them and said, do this in remembrance of me. And the same meal that we are taking here as we remember what Jesus has done, as we remember what God has done. It's a very significant meal. And it's a very significant point in the story of the book of Exodus. And there are three things I want to draw out of this. Three things I want to draw out about this time that Israel was in. And the first one is to say that when God moves, God moves. When God moves, God moves. They were in a desperate situation. It's, we could rehearse everything that we've been talking about for the last few weeks. Uh, just to say it very, very briefly, we know the situation that they were in. They were in a desperate situation in Israel in Egypt. Israel had gone to Egypt, a handful of people, an extended family, as it were, and they'd grown. They'd become a nation there over the hundreds of years that they were there, about 400 years, it says in the New Testament, that they were there. But they were there in this land, having originally been welcomed in by the leader of that land, but now had become a people that were enslaved, a people that were used, a people that were abused, a people who were slaves in a foreign land and a place that wasn't theirs and that they were now not wanting to be in. They were oppressed and the pressure was getting worse and worse and worse. And they wanted to break free. They wanted to be set free from this and leave that land and become the people that God was calling them to be. And God was obviously going to do something about this. There was this little baby who survived against all odds and ends up in Pharaoh's palace. We know that story, the story of Moses. God's hand is clearly upon that baby as he is delivered from death and brought into a situation where he is cherished and cared for. Everything seemed to be working around that. And he reached a point in his life when he thought, now is the time when God is going to do something about this. He's obviously placed... Have you ever been in those situations where you think that God has placed me in this situation and it must be about time for something to happen? Nobody else ever been in those sorts of situations? Just, you just come to your senses and think, this must be it. 
I've been put in this place for this reason. This must be what God has been calling me to do. I must do something about it. And Moses steps into that situation and tries to do something about it, and we all know that that went wrong. It's about 40 at that point, another 40 years in the wilderness. When is God going to act? God is surely on sorting this out, and now we are 80 years later and nothing's happened. God calls Moses in a bush that's on fire. Finally, finally something's going to happen, and God says to Moses, now something is going to happen. And we've had all these exciting bits. We've had, um, we've had clothes pegs and pipe cleaners that turn into coats pegs with pipe cleaners covered in plasticine. Absolutely fantastic bit of artwork with the staffs turning into the snakes for those that weren't there to make the craft a couple of weeks ago. We've had all sorts of signs. We've had Liz giving demonstrations of hands turning leprous and not leprous again using washing up gloves. Anyone remember that? A couple of weeks, a few more weeks ago. We've had all sorts of things that God has done. Signs and wonders and miracles, a whole series of plagues uh, that uh, David took us through last week. What could go wrong when God is doing something like that? Surely this is the time when God is going to be on the move. And what happens? Pharaoh hardens his heart and it gets harder and it gets harder and it gets harder. Nine attempts to go. Nine attempts, it seems, when God says, now is the time and something seems to happen and it doesn't happen. Again and again and again. Things take time sometimes. It's months ago that Boris Johnson left office. It just seemed to take a long time to get a new prime minister in place. And then when a new prime minister comes into place, it took a little bit of time, and then people thought maybe this wasn't such a good idea. And then there was that inevitability, both for her and for Boris Johnson, and everyone thought, you're done now. You can't stay. And how long do they manage to stay there for? And, and everybody else is saying, it's just obvious, they've got to go. Why don't they just go? But they stay there. These things sometimes take time to work their way through. And it takes God time to do things sometimes. There comes an appropriate time and a right time for something to happen, but that doesn't make it easy for those of us that are waiting. It doesn't make it easy when you're waiting for something to happen, for when's the time going to come that God's going to do something. It wouldn't be a word of prophecy, it would just be a word of stating what's obvious and common sense to say there are people in this congregation who are waiting for God to do something and God hasn't done it yet. It's hardly a word of prophecy to say. Although I felt God was saying to us as a congregation, for members of the congregation, that I know that there are people here who are waiting for me to do something and I haven't done it yet. There are people here, many of us, who are in pain and waiting for God to do something, who've got a problem with our health and waiting for God to do something, who've got a situation in our job and waiting for God to do something, are waiting for a job and waiting for God to do something. God has placed a call upon our lives and we're waiting for God to do something. There are people amongst us who are not in a relationship and long to be in a relationship and are waiting for God to do something. And there are people among us who are in a relationship who kind of feel like they may not want to be in that relationship who are waiting for God to do something. 
friendships that have tensions and pressures amongst us. And we think, I don't know if I can carry on with this friendship any longer. I don't know if I can get on with my mother, my brother, my wife, my husband, whatever it may be, my children. I, this is so difficult. God, will you come and sort it out? And nothing seems to be happening. And it's even worse sometimes when we've had that word when someone has said, God's going to sort this now. And it still doesn't seem to happen. It begins to move and it hasn't happened. We're not the first to go there. Moses and the people of Israel have been there centuries ago, millennia ago. I know what that is like. God is faithful. That's the point of the passage this morning. God is faithful. There comes a day when he acts at the right time to act, and he will act, and when he acts, he acts tremendously. But sometimes it takes a while to get there for all sorts of things. And as we look at the passage today, it's a significant moment, and you often know that you're reaching a significant moment when the action slows right down. And you get detail and detail and detail. We see this in movies. If you're watching a movie and stuff happens, you know, there's a blink of an eye, all sorts of things are happening and weeks have passed, and then suddenly you find things are slowing down and you get huge amounts of detail of things that are happening. Sometimes multiple camera angles repeating the same piece of things that are happening again and again. Make sure you got this. Make sure you've got what happened at this point. Let me show you in several different ways how it happens and the, and the filmmaker seems to take forever to show us something. This is important. This is an important moment. They're told the type of lamb to select, how old it should be, how to cook it, given the recipe, given a serving suggestion, it's a bit more than a serving suggestion. It's told, this is how you are to do it. It's a critical moment. Because it's the moment when God is saying, now is the time that we will go. Verses 2 and 3. This month shall mark for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell the whole congregation of Israel that on the 10th of this month they are to take a lamb for each family, a lamb for each household. It's significant. This marks the beginning of the year. This is where we will always remember. It's the beginning of the year now. This is the significant point. Things is, how do we organize our calendar into AD and BC? Uh, or BCE and CE, perhaps to say it more correctly. How do we organize our calendar? We organize it around the time of Jesus' death, although we're probably off by a few years, but never mind, this, this, the, the point is still there. We, orga- we, we have the year that is 2022 because it's 2022 after Jesus was born. Probably at least four years more than that, to be honest, but there's somewhere around there. But... And for them, this is a significant moment. You're going to start organizing the way that you remember time. Everything will begin from this point. This is the beginning of what God is doing. And when God says go, it's a go. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying for everybody in the congregation that God is now saying, it's go. It's a green light. I'm not saying that. For some of us, it may well be. Some of us, it may well be that we're entering that point when God is saying that it's time to go. 
But what I am saying is, for some of us, it's time to go. And if God has said it's time to go, then we have to go. They had to make a meal. They had to create this meal. That was what they were instructed to do. They had to get ready to leave the house. When God said it's time to go, then it's time to go. And do I want to say irritatingly? Well, I'm going to say irritatingly. We've been waiting for some time, and then he says it's all got to happen in the next two minutes. You know, that, that kind of pressure, that's sometimes how it feels. But sometimes God says, now is the time. Are you going to go? Let's go. And for some of us, it's still future. It isn't the time to go yet. It's the time to wait. But to wait and trust, remembering that in the past, God says it's time to go. And he will say it is time to go for us. Second thing is to remember that when God moves, he invites us to participate in that moving. We move with him. He called upon Israel to have a feast, to have a feast with a lamb. To have a feast with a lamb, in verse 3 we read about this. We read as it says, Tell the whole congregation of Israel that on the tenth of this month they're to take a lamb for each family, a lamb for each household. And they're to have it in a particular way, with bitter herbs, with unleavened bread, and that they're to kill it in a particular way together. They are to participate. They are to do something in preparation for this time. I have to say, it feels like a crazy time to have a feast. It feels like a strange time to have a feast before there's anything to celebrate. In other words, you're still in Egypt. You're still under pressure. You're still in slavery. You haven't gone anywhere yet. It kind of feels... It kind of feels like that football team that know that they're 1-0 up, there's one minute left, and they are celebrating on the field. And while they're celebrating and not paying attention, the other side somehow manages to score two goals. It happens. This premature celebration, or score the one goal that brings the equaliser, that then turns it into extra time, and then they've lost overall. I think it's all over. Well, it is now. How would it be saying we've had fireworks yesterday? Let's just get on and celebrate Christmas. You know, we can get all the stuff. You can buy pigs in blankets in Sainsbury's. You have been able to for the last few weeks. All the, all the Christmas stuff is there. Why don't we just have Christmas tomorrow? Just get on and do it. Let's, let's feast now. Let's celebrate Christmas. Let's just get it over and done with early. You know it's coming. Let's just do it. There's a time for feasting. There's a time for doing things. It's the right time to do things. It's... For some strange reason, I've got exams on my mind at the moment. But it's like celebrating doing really, really well in your French exam. It's sitting in the middle of your French oral exam. It's just not the right time to do it. And it feels for Israel that they're told to celebrate, to have this feast together before there's anything that has happened, before they've been released. Is it really time to get that lamb and to look up what Delia or Jamie Oliver says about how you cook it, because, you know, cook it over the fire, but, you know, how low do you put it on the fire and all that kind of stuff? How quickly do you turn it? You know, that kind of stuff. It's the, the whole technicalities is not there in the instructions that you give us, so you need to see what Delia says about that. I'm not going to use Gordon. It would just be too complicated if you use the way that Gordon does it. It's just for something straightforward and simple. Is it the right time? 
Surely the best time to celebrate is once we've left. Once we've got away from Egypt, we can have a time to celebrate. But that would have been difficult. The reason they're celebrating now is because it brings God into focus. God is calling them to go, and they're to celebrate God calling them to go. When God says something's about to happen, it's going to happen. God is in charge. God is in control of this. Not Pharaoh, who's been saying no. It looks like Pharaoh's been in charge by saying no, but he's not. God's the one that calls him to go, and God says, now it's going to go. Pharaoh's going to change his mind at this point. You're going to go. Now is time to go. But it's also because it requires, part of the going requires the participation of the people that are going. It's about drawing households together, about doing something together within the family, within the wider household, and smaller households gathering together and participating to do things in two ways. Firstly, participating together in readiness for what's going to happen, in anticipation for what is about to happen. Feasting before it's time to feast because we're getting ready for the time of real feasting that is coming. There is a reason to feast that's coming, and in anticipation of that, we're going to feast. There's a reason to celebrate, and in anticipation of that, we're going to celebrate. We're going to celebrate because God is doing now, tonight, what he said he was going to do. So let's celebrate that. It's a matter of faith. It's a matter of trust. He has said he's going to do it tonight. Let's celebrate. Well, he's given a bit of notice, but, you know, the night he's going to do it. It's going to be on that night. Celebrate that night in trust. Faith is not just about believing something. It's about believing something and doing something as a result of it. Often costly. And it's faith. It's grabbing hold of it with faith. It's faith without panic as well. Can you imagine that? That's that delicate balance that they've been told of Prepare the meal in this particular way. That takes a while to prepare that meal. To slaughter the lamb in a particular way and to have it all cooked over the fire. But at the same time to eat it in haste, ready to go, because it's, going to, it's that balance between preparing without panic and yet being ready to go. It's right on the line, which is what often happens with us in a place of faith. It's that calmness of trusting in God when there's that sense of having to do things quickly that looms over us and that sense of panic. Is that familiar to anybody? Often the place of needing faith is the point of that panic, that I have to do something. And it's in the presence of that panic that the Lord is saying, do things carefully, but be ready to leave. Quite often God asks us, I think, to do little things before we engage in the big thing. To do a little thing in readiness for the bigger thing that's going to happen, as steps of faith that we go on. If God is calling us to do something significant, he'll often call us to do something little on the way. You can see this in the story of Abraham. Abraham was just told to leave his, his ancestral home and move. He wasn't told where he was going or what was going to happen, and he takes the first step. I can think of things that the Lord has called me to do, and there's just... I'm not sure that I would have been keen to go on the path that I ended up going on if God told me in advance what was going to be involved in that path. But he reveals to you what the first stages of those paths are, and I think, I can do that. And you take the first couple of steps, and if you're willing to take the first couple of steps, then you begin to discover a little bit more about what that path is like. And you thought, well, I'm walking on this path, and God is trustworthy, and I can do a bit more, and I can do a bit more. And it's that first step that he's calling them to do, to participate in his deliverance, 
and participate in the deliverance by doing a little thing, by having this meal together, by putting a bit of blood on the door lintels. Are we willing to step out? Were they willing to step out? So it's in anticipation. It's a faith thing. Are you ready? Do this in obedience to me, and if you do this in obedience to me, we're going. Does that make sense? But it's also, it's also participating in remembrance as well. It's participating after the event. The way this story is told, I don't know if you, you read it, the way the story is written down, it doesn't really read as if it's preparations in order to do something. There's not quite all of a detail there. It reads as if it's written for a later generation to look back on upon what the earlier people were told. Does that make sense? It reads as if it's written down for a later generation to remember what their grandparents, great-great-grandparents, however many generations beforehand were told to do. This is what your ancestors were told to do. This, is not, this, this contains the instruction for the ancestors, but it is not the instructions for the ancestors as such. It's instructions for people to remember it. It's in, so that people in later generations can remember what they needed to do. This is what our ancestors had to do. We're supposed to remember this. These are instructions to remember. There's something about rhythms of life. There's some things about traditions that we have. There's some things about deliberate acts of deliberately doing something at a particular time to remember things. It helps us to give thanks and to remember. It helps us to preserve the memory as a group of people together of our collective memory of something. Helps us to have hope. Helps us to have faith that God's going to do something in the future. That's why I love testimonies from people. Testimonies from people sharing in church what God has been doing in their lives. If we're finding our lives dry at the moment, to hear that God is doing something in other people's lives helps us to know that God is faithful and to remember that God is faithful and to remember where God has done things in our lives. But together as a church, when we remember things and do things together, we remember what God has done for us as a church. We've all got rituals, I think. I won't ask what they are, but I suspect every family in this room have got traditions that they have at Christmas. And it's always fun when you find two families coming together and the clash of the traditions that happen about the way that things are done and suddenly finding you've got to explain something that nobody should really have to explain. Why a certain person has to carve the turkey when the only other time that they get involved in cooking is some point in the summer when they burn the barbecue. But it's usually you know, some particular person has to do that carving somewhat part of the tradition of Christmas, and they get upset if they're not. When you open the presents, the family that says that, you know, you have to explain to the guests why the dog gets the first mince pie every year. I, I've no idea, but for some families, that's probably something that happens. Why one present is kept before bedtime. My grandfather, when I was little, I think, tried to annoy my mother by trying to set up a couple of years running by winding up as kids, saying... Why don't you put your stocking out on Christmas night? Father Christmas might give you something on the way home. I can imagine my mother going, oh, great. <laughs> trying to set us up a tradition of trying to get more presents on Christmas Eve by putting up the stocking on Christmas Eve. We all have these ways of doing things, but it helps us to know that we belong. These are our traditions. We belong to this group of people. This is how we do things. My dad hasn't celebrated Christmas unless he has cold Christmas pudding with cold custard on Boxing Day. 
For him, if he hasn't had that, he hasn't celebrated Christmas properly. But we know as a family, we know that. We joke about it, we laugh about it that he wants to do that, and it becomes part of the belonging of who we are as a group of people. It articulates our story of who we are. And celebrating these meals together is important. Celebrating communion together is important. It reminds us of what God has done. The Passover, they were told to remember this, and every year, take the lamb and the herbs and the unleavened bread and eat it in a particular way and say particular words of remembrance to remember what God had done. This is an amazing act of deliverance. And it's important to remember it. This is an amazing act of deliverance. The amazing act of deliverance. And as we've taken bread and as we've taken wine, we remember what Jesus has done. And we feed upon his life and we drink him into us. And he ministers grace upon us as we do that. It's not just an act of remembrance, but as we do that together in faith, it's a blessing to us. Does that make sense? So there's a participation that goes on as we uh, look at this passage here. You can't be a Christian without participating in what God is doing. God calls upon us and we respond. God speaks into our lives and we respond in faith. He asks us to do something and we do it. And it's that response and that working with him that's critically important. Does that make sense? And I don't know for each of you if God is saying something at the moment and calling just this little bit of participation, this little bit of getting involved, this little bit of doing this with me that's important for our growth as Christians and important for our development as a Christian in our life. Worship on a Sunday morning is worship of our Lord Jesus, but we participate together and bless each other. And it wouldn't be the same thing unless we were doing that, that there's the Holy Spirit present among us and we build each other up. The word of encouragement that's spoken from one person to another as we participate in worship together, that word of encouragement builds the other person up. The words of prophecy that are spoken, the words that have come about the jigsaw this morning, the words that have come from Jane this morning, the words that have come from others this morning, they build us up, don't they? But it required the participation of that person to say that I want to participate in this and to engage in this and to be obedient and to give that enables everybody else to be blessed. The words of mercy that are given, that arm put around someone's shoulder who is suffering, that builds up, that blesses. The words of prayer that we give, the challenge that we give to one another, the ministry in the music, the ministry in the song, the ministry of each of us singing, and as we sing, no matter how well we sing or poorly we sing, we're lifting up our voice and producing a volume of praise within this place that's a blessing to all of us, isn't it? As well as a blessing to God. It's that participation together. So that's the second thing I wanted to say this morning, that there's a sense of participation that comes in this passage and that comes in our lives. And there are places where God particularly calls us to participate. He calls us to participate as we share in breaking the bread together, and we've already done that this morning. He calls us to participate in him as we go through the waters of baptism. And if there is anybody here that has come to faith and has not been baptized, that's a place where the Lord calls you to participate with him in doing something. 
we participate as, as well as we obey God and do what he calls us to do, and we participate as we worship. And maybe there's God is calling us in one of those areas. The third thing to say from the passage this morning is, I think it shows God acting in two different ways in an act of deliverance. It shows two different ways that God delivers. And I want to home in upon the idea of the blood, which we haven't talked about very much yet. Verse 7, we read this. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And then in verse 23, it says, For the Lord will pass through to strike down the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over that door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. There's blood on the doorposts. It's not a normal thing to do, really. Blood on doorposts tends to happen in horror movies. It tends to happen on those moments when you've got a paper cut and you didn't quite realize it, and then you find that there's blood all over the place. When you just Anybody else had that? You get a small paper cut, and you suddenly, by the time you discover that there's blood on your finger, you suddenly see that there's blood in all sorts of other places. But blood is, putting blood on your doorpost is not a normal kind of thing to do, at least for us in our society. What is the significance of it? What's the significance of putting blood there? Well, quite often we think of this in terms of sacrifice and an animal was sacrificed and in terms of the sacrifices that go on in the Old Testament, the forgiveness of sins and the bringing of forgiveness of sins to people. But I'm not entirely convinced that that's the major thrust here at Passover. Yes, it does point forward to Jesus and Jesus brought forgiveness of sins and as we have the um, commemoration of communion. Jesus talks about the forgiveness of sins that is brought as he remembers uh, the Passover, but he's drawing in all sorts of other imagery as he's talking about that suffering servant and sacrificial imagery from the Old Testament. I think what's happening here on Passover is slightly different. There isn't an altar. There isn't a priest. There isn't a confession of sin. There's no language of atonement that goes, surrounds this. So I'm not convinced it's primarily about forgiveness of sins. It's about something else. It's about deliverance. It's about setting free. It's about releasing. Blood says two things about God, about God acting in two ways. The first thing it says is that God is a protector. The blood that is put upon the doorposts signals to the destroying angel not to destroy anything in that house. The protection of God is upon those people. And God protects them and defends them from destruction and from death. And that is how our God delivers us. He delivers us. The destruction that was coming through Egypt was destroying the firstborn of humans and of the animals. It's a massive destruction. Israel hadn't listened to Israel. Egypt hadn't listened to anything else, any of the other plagues that came. It's got to an extreme level on the plagues as they're coming. And finally, with this, they will let Israel go. But it had got to this point. And there's this covering of the hand of God. This covering of the hand of God upon those that dwell in a place that is marked with blood of saying, they will not be attacked. They will not be harmed. They will be safe in that place because God protects. And God is our protector. We are those that know what it is to be protected by God. We are those as it was pouring with rain this morning, that have come into a place that forgives, 
shelter from rain and have taken down our umbrellas and have taken off our coats because it is no longer raining upon our heads because we're in a place of protection from the rain. And being in a house where there's blood upon the door is being in a place where God is protecting from, uh, from death in the same way as being in a house protects us from the rain. The blood is a visual imagery saying, in this house, one animal has already died. One lamb has already died, and that's enough. That's enough that that one lamb has died. That lamb dying, that's enough. There should be no more death in this place, and God protects and God defends. And the parallels to Jesus are obvious. I don't really need to say them, but Jesus dying, his death is enough. His death is enough that we do not die as we trust in him. As we are marked by his blood, as we are those who have placed our trust in him, we are marked with his blood and we are protected. We are delivered. We are those that have entered into his house and are defended from the rain. We are those that have made that decision. There's a choice on our part to enter in. There's a choice on our part to put the blood on the door. There's a choice on our part to do that. And God delivers What I find interesting about this is the whole question of why Israel needed to be protected in the first place, because Israel didn't really seem to need to be protected from the other plagues in the same way. The other plagues seemed to home in upon the Egyptians. And there's something here that seems to be different about Israel needing the protection of the Lord upon this. And it may well be saying something about who Israel is, that Israel wasn't completely obedient to the Lord. If this is something to do with the hardness of Pharaoh, there is hardness within Israel. We find this a few chapters later, not to spoil the plot, but we read about Israel being disobedient and being hardened in their attitudes towards God. And there is something within Israel that is like that. So God needed to do something in particular to protect them in this particular circumstance because even within God's people, there is something that needs to be dealt with. Second thing that it shows God doing, though, is God is a warrior. Who is the blood protecting Israel from? It's not from the devil going through doing things. It's from the destroying angel that's going through. God says, I will go through and destroy. God is the one that is going through and acting out this destruction and this killing. So it's God laying his hand aside from what he is doing as a warrior. He is coming through and smashing down oppression. He is the one that is coming through and clearing the path for deliverance. Deliverance could not happen unless he came against Egypt and smashed down the arrogance and smashed down the opposition that comes against God's people within Egypt. And God is coming as a warrior. This is war language. This is the language of the kinds of things that happens in war. And God is coming as a warrior, as a coming as a warrior for his people to deliver them and set them free. Does that make sense? And there comes a point sometimes when we need God to come and act strongly on our behalf. And that he does. So this morning, if you're in that place where you're waiting for God to come and act, keep waiting, keep trusting, keep praying, keep looking. Because when he says he's coming, he's going to come. When he says he's going to deliver, 
he will deliver. He will come as a deliverer, as a mighty warrior, and push things out of the way that are ahead of you, and push things back to clear a path for you to be able to leave the situation that you are in. And he will come as a protector to protect you from everything that is happening around that, this bubble of safety that surrounds you as he lifts you through that situation. Isn't that wonderful? But he calls us to participate in it too. And sometimes that's the participation that comes in faith before it. And sometimes that's the participation that comes to always remember what he's already done, that we can trust him for the future. Let's pray together. Lord, I want to thank you, firstly, for the deliverance that we have in Jesus Christ. And to remember, remember what you have done for us. As we've celebrated that today, taking the bread and the wine. Lord, we thank you that you've delivered us. Thank you that you've saved us. Thank you that you've rescued us. Thank you that you've pushed back death, that you've pushed back illness, you've pushed back sin and destroyed all that stands against you. And Lord, we hasten the day of your coming, bringing us into the fullness of that deliverance. And pray, Lord, come soon, Lord Jesus. But we pray into each of our lives where we are longing to see acts of deliverance. And Lord, we pray, would you come into those places? Lord, the things that rose in our minds as we were talking earlier about the pressures that we're under, would you come into those situations, we pray? And we stand together as a church and we pray, Lord, would you come and deliver? Would you come and deliver our brothers and sisters who are in hardship? Would you come and deliver our brothers and sisters who are under pressure? Would you come and deliver this nation? Would you come and deliver us all, we ask? In Jesus' name. Amen. Let your